Welcome back to Touching Base, the new weekly podcast series from Jen. I'm Phelan, senior editor of Gen Biotechnology, Jen's sister peer-reviewed journal publishing original research and perspectives across the biotech field. Joining me today from the Gen team are Uduak Thomas, Jonathan Grinstein, and Alex Filipides. Make sure to stay tuned for part two of this episode for Jonathan's interview with Andrea Cho, co-founder and CEO of Holoclera where they discuss the symbiosis between worms and humans and how to leverage this relationship to discover new medicines. But first, let's start with prime editing. Uduak, tell us about this latest paper from the CRISPR journal. Yes, yeah, so I seem to have got a bit of a theme going on here where I'm doing a lot of talking about gene editing. So last week I talked about using CRISPR to edit pigs to generate a version of pigs that were resistant to a very deadly porcine virus. This week I'm talking about prime editing and I'm highlighting, as you said, Faye, another paper from our sister publication, the CRISPR Journal. This time, this is research from scientists at the National Human Genome Research Institute. And it describes the use of prime editing to generate edited human-induced pluripotent stem cell lines that provide a valuable model of type 2 diabetes. So this work was done in uh, Dr. Francis Collins' lab, who I'm sure we're all familiar with. In the paper, his team describes designing a CRISPR-based prime editing protocol and how they optimized it. And they also talk about how they used it to edit iPSC lines at six SNVs associated with a type 2 diabetes risk. And so the final results are these iPSC lines that are great models for assessing the relevance of variants associated with risk of developing type 2 diabetes. Now, the work is uh, the culmination of about two years of research um, that involved optimizing the different single base changes and also the prime editing protocol that they used. To get a full picture, I really do encourage people to check the paper out. There's a lot of great detail in there, but I'll give some details at a high level. The researchers developed the protocol for editing the cells by varying various parameters to optimize the system. So they use different combinations of PGRNA and sgRNA oligos. And once they had transfected the cells, they also did uh, some sequencing steps to make sure that they were getting the best samples from the pool of cells. Um, the best samples that had the, the edit that they were interested in. They also talk a little bit about some of the design changes that they made to PEGR, the PEG RNAs that they used to make them more efficient editors. And based on the results in the paper, the researchers were able to get a range of editing efficiencies with their optimized protocol, all the way up to about 73%. And another thing that they report in the paper is that it now took them about four to five weeks to get the edited cell lines. This is as opposed to months um, with prior to the optimized version, using the optimized version of the protocol. So that's a very general overview of the paper. Definitely do check out the February issue of the CRISPR journal where this paper is published for a lot more details. And that issue is available online now. Actually, I would also like to shout out one more quick thing uh, before I pass the mic back to my colleagues. 
This time I'm talking about an article in Gen Biotechnology. This is another sister publication of Gen's. So a few months back, I had a chance to chat with Elizabeth Bick, who I'm sure is also no stranger to quite a number of folks listening to us. She's a microbiologist and a scientific integrity consultant. And she routinely writes about cases of falsified data, plagiarism, manipulated images, all things science misconduct on her blog, the Science Integrity Digest. Um, so I had a chance to sit down and chat with her about addressing scientific misconduct. We had a really, really interesting and informative conversation on the topic. And you can actually read all about it in the February issue of Gen Biotechnology, which is also out now. So please do check it out online. It's a really great conversation. Thanks, Uduak. The February issue of Gen Biotechnology indeed dropped last Friday and will be free for a limited time. So please do check out that interview with Elizabeth Bick and Udo X lovely interview. Building off of gene editing, Jonathan, you covered a new paper this week describing RNA-mediated transgene insertion. Tell us about this technology. Right. So pretty uh, groovy stuff here, especially just coming off of what Uduak was talking about with CRISPR and prime editing, which has been just so hot for the past, I don't know, year or so, you know. And um, this paper talks about a technology called PRINTS, they're calling it, which stands for Precise RNA-Mediated Insertion of Transgenes. So this approach uses two in vitro transcribed RNAs, one encodes a template for cDNA or that will be reverse transcribed by a retro element um, which is on the other RNA and it's I mean it's it's remarkably simple system I mean they had to do a lot of work to optimize the retro element so that they could get the the site-specific synthesis and insertion of the template. So basically what the main purpose of this tool is not to do editing for like nucle uh, nucleotide changes or to cause mutations or, you know, some of the th things that we often see with a lot of CRISPR tools. This is specifically for the purpose of transgene uh, synthesis and insertion. And it's, I mean, it's just, it's a completely different tool. It does not use anything related to CRISPR. It's all based on non-long terminal repeat retro elements. And yeah, I mean, it's, it's going to be really cool to see where this goes. Um, it, it was uh, percolating throughout Twitter. So, um, you know, there's, there's, it's definitely uh, causing a bit of noise. Very interesting to see this RNA-based approach, and you already alluded to a bit, Jonathan, on how print compares with CRISPR-Cas-based approaches. What's your take on where print fits in with CRISPR? You know, prime editing has been used, you know, kind of been touted as this palette for cutting or editing individual nucleotides or stretches of sequences, um, you know, removing adding, changing nucleotides, and where it has not been as great in its just natural, in its like original state, if you will, is for the integration of large stretches of DNA. Now for that, actually, Alex, you may, I, I was wondering if I could pick your brain here because you just wrote up um, a bit of work by Tome Biosciences, right? And they, they, they use PASTE, which is a CRISPR-based integrase method for inserting large DNA. So I, I can't remember how much DNA they could insert there. I think it was like 30 KBs, but with this RNA method, they can only do about 4 KB right now. 
Well, Tome uses what they say is uh, an improved version of Paste, not uh, Paste per se. So that's uh, something what they say is a, a very significant difference. And they are talking about curative cell therapies and integrative uh, gene therapies. Um, they had, uh, starting with uh, monogenic liver diseases and uh, for the gene therapies and autoimmune uh, for, for the cell. And they're supposed to come up with some more uh, details uh, too then. So they have additional patents, they say, building off. Although the developers of PACE, uh, Abudaya and uh, Gutenberg, uh, are on the board of uh, Tome and are basically been the scientific founders as well as the developers of the original PASTE. Right, right. So there's PASTE there. And then I believe the prime editing people, which, you know, originating from David Liu's lab, they came up with an approach called PASSAGE or P-A-S-S-I-G-E or PASSAGE. Maybe that's how you say it. I'm not sure. Yeah. Um, PASSAGE is Prime Assisted Site-Specific Integrase Gene Editing, uh, for what it's worth. And yeah. uh, while PASTE fuses the prime editor and the integrase enzyme into a single protein chain, the passage of prime typically uses them as two separate proteins. And uh, Liu has insisted, he said, uh, that uh, he's never observed any benefit from fusing the prime editor and uh, integrase uh, together. And uh, in fact, Liu has been, he shared in Gen, certainly uh, some critical views of uh, the PACE technology. Yeah, well, they're, I mean, you know, everyone's kind of trying to spread their arms or whatever, you know, to, to make space here, because it's just so competitive. I and mean, a lot of people say that the gene insertion field is kind of the last frontier. But but just to make this totally clear, the, the print technology, as opposed to like PACE and Passage, it does target uh, a site specifically in the genome, a safe harbor site. So it is not being used, for instance, to swap out stretches of DNA um, to correct genes that are faulty. And, uh, you know, if there was like a don dominant negative, I think it wouldn't work there unless there was some nifty mechanism. But, you know, it's very good for transgene expression. It's good for if there was a loss of function, could get expression of a, a particular gene. And what's interesting about it is that the sites are like, they're there's many of them. They're this R ribosomal DNA bit that repeats throughout the genome. So like you can get very, very, very strong expression apparently by targeting this location. So yeah, we'll we'll see how it plays out. I, I you know, I don't know exactly what the therapeutic role will be or how this will be adapted for gene therapy yet. It's still very early days, but you know, very curious and definitely interesting to see a completely new technology that's just based off of, you know, two in vitro transcribed RNAs. The original PACE, by the way, uh, has up to 36,000 base pairs uh, were uh, studied in the development of that technology, although Tome says that they could go beyond 30,000 base pair range, but they haven't seen the clinical need to do so, at least for now. Thanks, Alex and Jonathan. Jonathan, you also covered cell therapy this week. Tell us about the latest partnership between Estellas and Colonia for in vivo CAR-T cell therapies. Yeah, so this collaboration is pretty cool. What it does is it merges together Colonia's in vivo gene therapy uh, targeting approach. So 
they're the thinking here is that they they've been trying to develop a technology so that they don't have to do ex vivo based um, gene editing for let's say CAR T cells, which is what's in question here in their collaboration with Astellas. And what Astellas is bringing to the table is they have a technology to create a universal CAR T cells, so CAR T cells that can be used uh, across different patients and for different kinds of receptor, you know, targeting different kinds of cancer cells. So this approach together creates an in vivo off the shelf, you know, kind of universal CAR T therapeutic option. It's very, 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 very early stages here. I mean, they just like are bringing together their technologies. We're not in anywhere near like a phase one trial, even that I was told could happen as early as maybe late next year. But it's really exciting um, to see these two technologies come together. I know like there's just, you know, there's so much exciting stuff happening with CAR-T and it's been so successful in the, the, its current state by doing the ex vivo gene editing and then putting these cells back into patients. Um, so it's kind of a, you know, interesting to see here that maybe everything will move over to the in vivo side of things. I mean, it's maybe too early to tell. Yeah, it's, it's it'll be interesting to see how that all plays out. Jonathan, for our listeners, can you describe why in vivo gene editing of CAR T cells is an attractive alternative to the current ex vivo approaches? Yeah, so it's quite the rigorous protocol to extract T cells, engineer them, and then reinsert them into a patient who has then undergone some side of some sort of conditioning chemotherapy so that the engineered T cells won't get wiped out by an immune response. And it's not only laborious, it's costly, and it's very patient specific. It's not scalable. So it, it just, it takes a lot of work from what I understand. And by being able to remove that whole process of taking cells out, engineering them, putting them back in, you know, conditioning a patient with chemotherapy and potentially just going straight into treating them with a virus or some some, some other approach to to create the in vivo gene editing is, is just, it's remarkably simpler and, and it can be much more standardized as well because you're looking at just using this one virus and you can, you know, dose it appropriately and which is a whole other thing when it comes to ex vivo edited CAR T cells because that, that's your treatment, right? That's what you have to put into the patient and you're hoping to dose them with the right amount of cells that you've generated. And it's just, you know, kind of less, you got less chances to make it all work, if you will. So I think there's a lot of upside for in vivo gene therapy approaches, especially for CAR-Ts. Um, and I, I personally think this is the first of, of, of many, not just CAR-Ts. I think Colonia is going a bit with what they know of already because the founder, Kevin Friedman, comes from a background where he used similar kinds of cargos and, um, you know, it's a field where the ex vivo stuff is working really well. So I don't know, you know, for all we know, we'll be seeing the same kind of thing popping up in other sorts of uh, indications, but it may be uh, a bit too soon to tell. And then there's going to be a certain indications where that's kind of the only way you can go anyway. So it's going to be a really important uh, technology to develop regardless. Thanks, Jonathan. Alex, let's shift to you. You're here to bring us the business news of the week. Tell us about Biogen's Q4 results. 
Sure. Thanks, Faye. Uh, Biogen had a lot of news to share with investors this past week as it reported fourth quarter and full year 2023 results, but much of it was disappointing. The sales of the Alzheimer drug Lakembi were lower than anticipated, as were sales of its flagship multiple sclerosis drug portfolio and U.S. sales of a Friedrich's ataxia treatment Skyclaris, which won European Commission approval just last week. Now, uh, how low? Lakembi generated only $7 million in uh, product revenue during the fourth quarter, $10 million for all of 2023. And all of that was recorded by ESI under their collaboration agreement uh, with Biogen. Skyclaris uh, racked up almost $56 million in the fourth quarter, and there hadn't been all of that in the U.S., and there hadn't been uh, any sales uh, a year earlier. So the fourth quarter earnings and revenue also fell short of expectations. Uh, this is a time when Biogen is still uh, plowing through its plans to eliminate a thousand jobs, 11 and a half percent of its workforce, among other cost cutting actions and restructuring uh, its pipeline. Now, individually, those are not in themselves major headwinds, but together they snowballed and combined to send the shares of Biogen uh, down 10 and a half percent last week to just over $219 a share Friday. And yeah, we can say it came back this week, but only 0 0.06 uh, up on um, uh, Tuesday. And as of our recording date, only a half percent uh, up to almost $221 a share. Now, uh, Christopher Wiebacher, he's the president and CEO of Biogen, uh, insists that things are headed on the right track in the year since uh, he's taken over the day-to-day -day helm. But that vision of his has yet to translate into Biogen's overall results. The fourth quarter saw a 55% plunge in net income to $249 million uh, on revenue that fell 6% to nearly $2.4 billion. And then for the full year 2023, Biogen's net income nosedived 61% to nearly $1.2 billion uh, on revenue that slid 6% to almost $10 billion. Now, these lower than expected top and bottom line results and sales fall-offs led Wells Fargo to downgrade their ratings on Biogen stock, while analysts from Wells Fargo and 14 other firms lowered their 12-month price targets on the company's shares. Uh, Wells Fargo cited what it called uh, a limited opportunity to see uh, some growth or inflection point given what appeared to be a slowdown in U.S. sales for Skyclaris. Remember when, that, when Skyclaris first came out, there was a little bit of a bump forward because uh, doctors had a lot of patients in waiting or bolus uh, so that there was a surge of treatments that uh, were given early on when the drug hit the market. Also slow uptake for uh, the Alzheimer's drug, uh, Lakembi. Alex, to give some more context here, what are some of the causes for these struggles in Biogen sales and earnings? Biogen has begun but has not finished transitioning from depending heavily on sales on their multiple sclerosis drugs, which are aging and which will soon lose patent exclusivity. And uh, Biogen wants to base more of its sales on drugs for both neuroconditions like Alzheimer's, hence uh, Lakembi, and rare diseases like Friedrich's ataxia. Skyclaris uh, is approved for FA in adults and for youth 16 uh, and 17 years of age. Now, Wiebacher has led efforts to build sales outside of MS, but and he can claim a little bit of credit because uh, 
Biogen's overall rare disease portfolio and biosimilars portfolio showed some small year-over-year gain, single-digit percentage during the fourth quarter in 2023. But the ship has a way to go to turn around. Thanks, Alex, Jonathan, and Uduak for the news coverage this week. We'll be back with Jonathan's interview with Andrea Cho, co-founder and CEO of Holoclara, after this quick break. This episode of Touching Base is brought to you by Gen Biotechnology, the marquee peer-reviewed journal from the publishers of Genetic Engineering and Biotechnology News. Launched two years ago, Gen Biotechnology publishes exceptional research, reviews, opinion, and analysis across the biotech spectrum, from genomics and symbio to AI and drug development. The journal features an outstanding editorial team, which is led by Chief Editor Hannah Al-Samad. Senior VP at Altos Labs in California. Gem Biotechnology has already published exciting original research on gene editing to boost vitamin D tomatoes, CRISPR-based pest control, base editing delivery in a single AAV vector, and cost-effective 3D printing. Plus, Gem Biotechnology has featured exclusive interviews with biotech CEOs, insights from Wall Street financial analysts, and news features from Gem reporters covering the state of aging research AI and protein design, and advances in organon chips. Gem Biotechnology is the new choice for novel and groundbreaking advances in the biotech field. Learn more at www.gembiotechjournal.com. Welcome back to Touching Base, the new podcast series from Gen. In this segment, Jonathan chats with Andrea Cho, co-founder and CEO of Holoclara. They discuss the symbiosis between worms and humans and how to leverage this relationship to discover new medicines. Let's give it a listen. Nice to meet you, Andrea. I'm really excited to hear about Holoclara. Is that how you say it? That's right. Nice to meet you as well. Yeah, nice to meet you. I guess before getting into anything, actually, where does that name come from? <laughs> it actually is derived from this Greek word, holokleros, which is to complete, means complete. And I think that once I walk you through this story, if you're so compelled to consider that worms are actually intended to be a part of the human biome, and so by us exploring what key components would benefit mankind and returning it back in, we would be completing part of the human legacy. Right? So we're not, we're not talking about C. elegans here. We are. We aren't talking about C. elegans. Yes. Yeah. yeah. I mean, they, they're fascinating for a, a few different, I mean, areas of study in particular that I'm aware of. I, I do see a lot, they use a lot in longevity studies, which I always find a little curious, but um, yeah, no, C. elegans are a model that are very interesting, but I have never gotten to work it. And I've got yeast and mice and human cells under my belt. But anyways, tell me about C. elegans. <laughs> yeah, so I've, I've dabbled in on all of them. M mouse labs is how I started my research undergrad at UCLA. And then at Caltech, I actually rotated through a Drosophila lab. And then when I ended up at the roundworm lab, I just fell in love with them because first of all, they're so incredible and so simple. The amount of information that you can learn from a worm, you wouldn't believe how many genes that we have that are similar with worms, but more so just studying life. If you remove one cell, what would happen? If you remove one gene, what would happen? If you wanted to keep those cells and genes and wait till they matured, into the second stage of their life and then turn them off and on. How would you do that? 
And C. elegans is actually the most incredible organism to be able to play with all of those dials. I mean, let me just set the scene for you. So I walk into this lab, Caltech, with where they're studying roundworms. Most of what I see there is microscopes. And people are sitting at their microscopes with little petri dishes. And they have this tiny metal little stick where they can pick up worms and move them over. What I loved about that was, first of all, they're not flying away, which was my problem in the Drosophila lab, right? And second of all, you know, you could also just freeze your mutants and follow them. There would be a library where you can pull out any worm mutant you want and follow it and study it that same day. You could put it under a microscope and laser ablate any one cell that you want, then bring it back to life and see what happens. You could feed it this incredible technology known as RNAi, where then you could mutate, take out a take out a gene of any cho your choice and then see what happens. How does that interact with the mutation of that worm that the worm already has? Just infinite possibilities, right? So there, that, that in and of itself is what drew me to the worm lab. And then I think what happened over one, the course of the summer is my PI left town. So, you know, she, this is where, you know, this is a story where it's like the parents leave and then what happens? You, you get into some, you get into some sort of trouble, right? And I think for me, it was, I didn't want to do the project that I had agreed upon doing. It was a really great genetic screen, but I then just grew so interested in something else was watching the worms under the microscope and seeing how they would move, they would form patterns. And then suddenly I started reading papers on swarming and starling migration and locusts migration and how animals were communicating with each other. So then I did a big pivot from a genetic project into trying to eavesdrop on the language of worms. So I would say that's part one to the story. Yeah, HD and worm whispering. <laughs> no, <laughs> no, really. Tell me more. No, molecular worm whispering, if you will, probably. Absolutely. So then what I did was I wanted to understand not just how worm C. elegans was talking to each other, which, you know, we were studying that, certainly, but also we, there were all of these other scientists that were studying other roundworms. And here's what's beautiful about worms. You can sequence them and figure out how long ago did they evolve from each other. And I'm talking hundreds of millions of years ago. So, I mean, just... I just want to repeat that because I think this is the part that people really, it, it turns their head when they consider this. Worms have been here for hundreds of millions of years, like before T-Rex. They've always been a part of animals. They've been part of dinosaurs. They've been a part of Icemen, Ozzy the Icemen. They've been part of Homo erectus and now Homo sapiens. So they've been here for a really long time. That's another, I'll, I'll just place that part of the story over here for now. But anyways, you can sequence worms and you can figure out this whole beautiful phylogenetic tree, you know, those diagrams where you can see branchings and how far ago, how many millions of years ago they've diverged from each other. So then I said, what if I take these worms and find out how far they've evolved from each other and then figure out what they're secreting to talk to each other and then do this great big study on how language has evolved, how worm language has evolved. That was the intent of my study. And I got 
such great support from the worm community, if you will. I mean, I was emailing veterinary parasitologists. They would send me worms that they dissected out of sheep. I would get worms dissected out of rat intestines and plant. I would get sent carrots that were infected. I mean, it was fantastic. <laughs> yes. <Yeah. laughs> I, I would even have rose bushes growing on my baymate's went windows and unbeknownst to him, they were also infected. (laughs) It was, it was a fabulous project. And, you know, as we started studying their secretions and characterizing what molecules they were using to quote unquote, talk to each other, what I learned was really interesting is that they're using the same language. So when we study worms that came out of rat intestines, they were using the same language that a worm that was found out of a nut in Brazil on the floor was using, which by the way is actually absolutely true. I smuggled in a nut from the floor of a Brazilian forest. And that to me was really fascinating. They are found on different sides of the world. They don't, they just, they should never see each other. They don't have the same ecology. So at some point, hundreds of millions of years ago, they were using this language before this great burst of diversity, and they continued to use that language. So I'll, I'll just, I'll pause there again. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, that's, so, I mean, it's it's working for them. This language is working for them. It's It's been staying around for millions and millions of years. I guess I'm I'm curious as, as to what, what comes next. How do, how do we go from, word worm communication to, you know, an application in biotechnology. Okay, great. So let's now, now this is, this is the the part, this is the other turn in the story. So I published this, this paper and just, it talks about the worm diversity. Then a friend of mine from the worm lab sends me a podcast, radio lab. And it's all about this guy that has terrible asthma and nothing's working for him. And he decides to go to Africa barefoot walk around, get hookworms to crawl through his skin and into his intestines on purpose to treat his asthma. And it works and it's fantastic. He comes back, he tries to sell worms. You know, he gets pushed out of the country. He sells worms from Mexico and it's still, he's still selling them out of Mexico today. So that, wait, so that's the, that's the, that's the part of the story where then I have a million questions. Why did he do that? What do, what do worms have to do with anything? And here's what I learned. We are supposed to have worms. That part, I get. You know, they've just been a part of the human biome for a very long time. But this is the, 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 the piece that became interesting for me. We started taking worms out of our bodies in industrialized countries at the turn of the century. I'm talking about 19, early 1900s. If you look for vintage worm adver- deworming advertisements, if you will. Around the same time is when we first started getting allergic and autoimmune diseases which now affects hundreds of millions of people. To this day, we have not figured out what causes allergic and autoimmune diseases, but we know that we used to not have them. Why do we have them? What what is it about that connection? Could it be part of the removal of worms? Could it be that they were intended to be a part of our immune system? And when we suddenly removed them, we removed this missing piece that's actually supposed to be working in harmony with our own immune system. So if you dive into that some more, what you'll learn is this, is that 
this is also not a new thought. There's actually decades and decades of incredible scientists out there that have been researching this field. It's called palminthic immunomodulation. And so there are these amazing scientists all over the world. And I've already, uh, I'm working now with one of the leading researchers in this field, Rick Mazels in Glasgow. And they've been studying, they grow worms, parasitic worms, they grow them and they study how they affect the mammalian immune system. And they see that there's this anti-inflammatory effect. So why is that? Why do parasitic worms, why would they impart this anti-inflammatory effect? So what I would ask you to do is just pretend that you're a worm. Pretend that you are a parasitic worm and you're living in a host and your ancestors have had a lot of experience living in mammalian hosts and dinosaur hosts and all sorts of hosts. What would you do if you had all the time in the world to secrete any kind of molecules you want? Which ones would benefit you the most? The ones that would protect your host, right? That would keep them healthy. And also you would want to just sort of silence the cells that are coming after you, which are a lot of these inflammatory cell types. So you're creating now this balanced ecosystem for yourself within your human host for both both parties benefit, if you will. Now, where I come into this is people have been asking, what is it that the worms are secreting to do this? Now we see, okay, that we see all these papers. There's dozens of papers, dozens and dozens of papers, if not hundreds, okay? And so the question is, well, what are they secreting to do this? (laughs) And... No one has taken worm secretions, identified individual components, developed them for clinical trials for specific patient populations. No one. And then that's where I come in, where I say, you know what? I think wait, I know what they. I, I think I know what they're secreting. That's doing that. I found this really cool language of theirs. It's, there's got to be something in here that's doing that. And we did. We so we tested com- different components of the language, and lo and behold. Some of these molecules had this tremendous anti-inflammatory effect in multiple preclinical models of disease. So that's when we patented it. We developed the patent for it. We started move, develop, we, we started the company and we are developing this for you know, multiple diseases that we know that it has a therapeutic effect on. And we're slated to go into clinical trials this year. That is a pretty groovy story. I, I mean... Yeah, if, if it were October, I would like launch this episode like right now. <laughs> no, 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 this is this is freaky, amazing evolution at its finest. You know, it's as you said, the there's such a beautiful logic behind it, and it's very, very intriguing. I think one place that my mind goes to is so at Holoclera, do you have a giant worm farm? Or do you identify these molecules and then using synthetic biology tools or some expression systems, do you then, you know, build up your eventual clinical and commercial batches of of, of these molecules? I'm kind of curious there if there's something particularly special that the worms are doing besides it just, you know, having evolved these genes or, or, yeah, what exactly is going on with this story? Um, Yeah, I think that... If, if this, again, if this were October and we did sort of a spooky podcast, I would give you <laughs> on purpose this different image of us growing these worm bats and we have <laughs> bat scientists 
but that's that's not the case. We we started that way. I'll tell you, I during my time at Caltech, I had all kinds of worm vats growing, all kinds of worm vats. And once we isolated these molecules, we then switched to this chemistry focus. And that's in where we have some great chemists helping us, one of them being from Caltech, Brian Stoltz, who's an incredible synthetic chemist. He can he can make anything, I think. You were to give him a challenge, he, he probably could make it. Um, so now we're making it from scratch using traditional, if it were a small molecule, then we would make it using traditional chemistry. But we are still dabbling in new worm vats, not necessarily at Holoclara, but finding places to, to obtain this material. And I will say we have, we have other species that are in the quote unquote hopper, if you will, so I have a, I suppose, a technical question about, I guess, filling the gap of maybe it's, if you would call it like the screening part or the, the functional assays here. How exactly are you testing or identifying these molecules? Are you looking at every single molecule that these worms secrete and then, you know, putting them onto cells or in mice or in some sort of model organism? Or are you... Yeah, what are you knocking out genes? What, what what is the approach here to get down to these beneficial molecules, if you will? If I told you, I'd have to kill you. <laughs> <laughs> I I can tell you that we use traditional drug discovery in the way that look, we're not the first to find things from nature. By the way, there are other people that have done it. Taxol, for example. So this is no, there's no mystery about how people take secretions and find key therapeutic molecules, funnel them, and then study them in your traditional preclinical methods. So there is unfortunately no, nothing that is, there's no worm vat farming screening secret there. But I will say also, think about all the times that people are pulling things out of nature all the time, like CRISPR came from bacteria, right? Mm -hmm. um, Ozempic came from the secretion of a Gila monster. So I think that this is just an era where people are returning to nature and pulling out all the kinds of interesting things that they've already innovated for many, many millennia. Yeah, no, I mean, that makes that's, makes sense to me. Not, not, not some sort of uh, molecular worm sorcery. And just to kind of bring this all home with the idea of autoimmunity and allergies and whatnot, is that the route I'm assuming then you're taking in terms of pursuing where, where you're, the indications that you're pursuing for these drugs that you're developing? Uh, I mean, that's my basic assumption, but maybe there's some other stuff there. You're absolutely right. It goes beyond that, I would say. So the worms have incredible incredible therapeutic potential that goes beyond allergic and autoimmune disease. I will say that those are the ones that we're starting with and I can share specific indications, you know, in the upcoming quarter or so as we head into our first safety trial. But for now, I can share that worms are doing so much more than helping patients with these terrible debilitating diseases. There's actually a, this landmark paper from Nature where women in this tribe, I think they were in the Yanomami tribe, the ones that had worms were more fertile. They would actually have children earlier and more children. And 
you know, there, if you, if you start thinking about that, for example, why is that? Well, the embryo is considered a foreign agent. And so your own immune cells are going and attacking it. But if you could think of the worm secretions as almost this Jedi cloaking device, which is there's nothing to see here, leave us alone. They're doing the same thing for the embryo, right? Mm. Put down your arsenal, just leave us be. So I think all of this is where, this is the, all the kinds of things that we're studying, that we're discovering is really interesting. And I think that this will be just the beginning of our, I don't know what you want to call it, the worm empire. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I was going to ask what the, one of the most, you know, fantastic or interesting stories that you've heard of in terms of worms conferring some sort of physiological or benefit in humans. But I think the one you just described is really interesting. I also have this image. I don't know if you ever watch Futurama, but there's this episode of these, I think they were round worms and they're like literally massaging the like fibers in this character's brain to make them smarter. So now I, you know, I have been this image of them working away, you know, keeping. They do do that. They yeah. do. <laughs> I mean, there are one of the, the projects that I pitched when I was a grad student Paul Sternberg, who's a co-founder of the company, um, bless his heart, would entertain all of my insane ideas. And at one point, it was to, to study these worms that would, they would go into roly-polies, I believe. Do you remember? Do you remember I don't know. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Okay. I'm like, is roly-polies a generational term? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, but they would go into roly-polies, which, by the way, typically a roly-poly would hide in the dark because they would then, it would be hard to see them. Birds would not come and eat them. But this, this one worm that would parasitize roly-polies would make them walk on purpose to a bright, contrasted area so that a bird can come and eat them. And then the bird would then carry on the second life stage of that worm. I mean, how incredible is that? So worms can change behaviors. And I think that this is all stuff that we're really interested in figuring out is the worms, again, have been here for much longer than we have. And so, you know, they're, they're master puppeteering a lot more than we know. And I just, I, for one, want to get to the bottom of that. Yeah, no, very, very cool stuff. Very mind-blowing. I mean, all the things that go on that we cannot see at, at all the different levels is you know, one thing that's so fascinating about biology. This is just another layer of such complexity that uh, that's always going on that, you know, it's, it's, it's just, it's, it's amazing. And then, yeah, kudos to finding a way to, to harness this to, to help people at the end of the day. So very, very interesting story. Andrea, thank you so much for your time. Yeah, this was absolutely fascinating. There's not often where I'm just totally blown away by something that I've never heard before, but you definitely, uh, managed to do so here. So really excited to see what comes out of Hola Clara and thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for your time. I really enjoyed the conversation. That's a wrap for this week's episode of Touching Base. I'm Faye Lin. Join us next week for more news coverage and conversations from the Gen team. We'll see you next time.